0: welcome to the social fishing podcast my name is reese creed i'm a passionate angler and i want to share as much as i can about the sport we all love on this podcast we speak to incredible anglers sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge all to help you reach your fishing dreams thanks for joining us today now let's begin Welcome, everyone, to episode 17 of the Social Fishing Podcast, and this is a very special episode. What I want to do is interview some of our top freshwater anglers and get them to share their experiences and knowledge on this podcast. That's the whole point of it, and this episode was absolutely incredible. I was lucky enough to sit down and interview Rory Ben-Cliborn, who grew up in Canberra fishing the urban lakes and the Murrumbidgee River. Now, this was a great interview with Rory. I cannot believe how long we talked for, and the information he shares in the podcast is as good as it gets. Now, Rory is a genuine bloke who absolutely loves fishing. He lives and breathes it. Ever since he was a kid, he has found time to hit the water and have a fish. His passion for fishing evolved into making lures even from a very young age, and now it has resulted in his business and brand, Perch Palm, which we talk about in this episode. We also talk about the local waterways, which include the Murrumbidgee and the Molongolo Rivers, uh, the urban lakes, including Lake Burley Griffin, and the Trophy Fishery Gugong Dam. These are all local waterways to Rory in the ACT Canberra region. Now, Rory shares his angling style and how he fishes, the techniques he uses, and how he approaches different situations. We talk about soft plastic techniques which includes how Rory has adapted American techniques to Australia for chasing redfin and golden perch. Some of the things we talk about were so cool and I learned a lot myself from this chat with Rory. It's incredible what you can learn from other anglers as we all have our own fishing style and that's what's great about this podcast is we get to share these different things that different anglers do. We then talk about some of Rory's experiences and his most memorable and best catch to date. As I said, this episode blew me away and I really do hope you enjoy it. Now, before we jump into this episode, I just want to remind you guys about the Freshwater mini-series which is out now and available through the social fishing accounts. Now, you can jump on and create a free account and get access to the Freshwater mini-series absolutely free. This series is all about helping you catch more fish. It's not just about us catching fished, to be honest, there is only a little bit of fishing action. Most of it is quality content and tips that will give you the knowledge so you can go out there and catch fish. Jump on and check it out. Also, remember inside the free accounts, you can submit listener questions to the podcast which we will answer in the episodes where I sit down with Talos and Chris, those co-hosted episodes of the podcast. So send through your questions for us to answer for you. Righto guys, now it is time to jump into this cracking episode. Now, it is long, but Rory and I just kept talking and talking and there is so much good stuff in this talk and I didn't want to cut it short at all. So, without further ado, guys, let's jump in and talk with the one, the only, Rory Ben-Clibon. G'day, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I am super excited because I have the one and only Rory Ben-Clibon. Thanks for joining me, mate. Cheers, Reese, Thanks for having me. I'm excited because we're going to talk lots about fishing, get to understand what you know about fishing, share that with everyone and I'm sure there are plenty of keen anglers ready to listen. Now, you are born and bred Canberra boy, you grew up here. Yep, born in Canberra, Uh, grew up in Canberra in this very
1: part of Canberra in Belconnen area. Yep. Um, I spent a lot of time over my younger years just exploring the region around Belconnen because that was about as all I could get to on my bike or walking. Um, and as I grew up a little bit more, well, we started expanding a little bit more around town, getting dropped off by our parents and stuff to yes. far reaches of the town and, and uh, yeah, just... So you grew up fishing. It started from a very young age? Yes, it did. I started probably, I think my first fish I caught was about three or four years old. Yeah, right. What, yeah. Do you remember what your first fish was? Yeah, it was a trout. It was in Victoria at um, a trout fishing farm somewhere near Beechworth, I believe. Um, I just remember very clearly wanting to run home back to Canberra to uh, show my friend Logan the picture <laughs> of the fish. And um, yeah, it was just a, a really, I've been very passionate about fishing ever since I was a, a young boy. Um, yeah. I've always been an artist and uh, a creator and I've always enjoyed every aspect of fishing. And I've always been obsessed with the way they work and intrigued by how they exist
0: underwater you know it's such a different it's crazy isn't it because i always think that too we're out there and we're fishing you're like we go and do our stuff every week and we might be out there just for a tiny portion of that fish's entire life trying to trick it and it's just what goes on for the rest of the time under the water
1: oh my god it's amazing and like these, these days, with the use of uh, electronic technology, it's unbelievable what you can yes. understand about their behaviour. Even when they're not biting, I mean, even just watching a standard 2D sonar can give you a, a huge insight into their world. And it
0: makes a big difference, but it's still, like, if we could get inside their brain and work out how they think. Like, it's never going to happen. We're never going to get that far, but that would take the fun out of fishing. But we can predict what they're going to do, but it's it's crazy world, isn't it, to it's, think... It's an absolutely amazing
1: world and there's so little that we actually know about it. Yes. Um, I mean, it's always intrigued me and I spend a lot of time ruminating over certain factors that could have, you know, gone into play at certain times of the year and, and, uh, and their patterns and stuff. But a lot of the time it just gets blown out of the water. Just the second yeah. you, you've just got to be out there to try, and, to try and get your head around it. Exactly. But at the same time, I mean, I come home scratching my head so often. And go.
0: Why didn't that web work that time? What like what? What
1: the hell? Yeah, the, the amount that can change just overnight
0: is just unbelievable. So it's crazy, and and that's what the point of this podcast is: is to interview people like yourself who've had your own range of experiences. I've had my own experiences. Everyone else has had different experiences, and sometimes we might be sharing something, and they go, mm, "Well, I don't really believe in that." Or even like you said, there was a thing we talked about at Lake Windermere in the podcast you listened to prior to this one, and we were talking about the the technique Mason was using on Twitch. and you're like. Well, funny thing, I wrote an article about that way back. Slightly different version of the Twitch, yep. but still a different insight into how you fish. And that's the whole point of this podcast. And people, you can basically take what you want from it and, and use it out on the water. Now, what I want to go back to is you said, back to how you all started, was fishing a party family? Did your parents fish or did your dad fish? Or how did that actually start? Or do you, do you remember it?
1: Yeah, I do. So my dad is a mad keen angler. He's been... Um Probably not to the same degree of obsession yeah. as I have throughout my life, but he's um, he's been a competitive sport angler in the 70s and 80s in Sydney. Yep. He grew up in Tamworth fishing with his family and his brothers and um, spent a lot of time tracing um, trout in the high country and then yellow belly and cod at Lake Keeper and Split Rock Dam. Um, yeah, so- right. Yeah, he moved to Canberra to marry my mum um, and still had an obsession for fishing. So he built a cabin at Lake Eucanbean when I think I was about two years old. He built it. Yeah, he built it. Yeah, Yeah, it's an annex cabin um, at Frying Pan. And um, so basically every second weekend from I think about the time I was four or five years old, I was travelling to Eucanbean and going out trolling and and fishing with Dad. Um, I became completely obsessed with the sport of fishing. You know, a lot to, sometimes to my dad's disdain would I'd be just a bit over trolling and want to get off <laughs> from the bank and go for a spin, or yeah. or just stand at the front of the boat and cast a lure. Um, and then also at a very early age, I got I got really into lure making as well. Um, I did a lot of timber carving, and a lot of hand painting of at lures, what age? Um, before ten years
0: old. Yeah, right. So really young.
1: Yeah, very young. Um, I made a couple of lures. I think the first one that really ever worked. It uh, it was probably about nine or ten years old and. I went to Windermere when I was about 11 or 12 and I still had that lure and uh, I caught a 60 centimeter golden perch. You caught one? Yeah.
0: What was it? Explain the lure. It was a little so, timber.
1: It, yeah, a little timber, frog pattern. Um, I think the uh, sort of design I copied off was like a, a Wee Wop or something. Yeah, yeah, um, Wee Uh Yeah. Hot and Top. Yeah, okay. Yeah, know, so, yeah, the, sorry. Hot and Tot Lure and, um, yeah, it was painted green with black dots like a frog. Yeah. And I caught my personal best golden at the time, which I would have been about 11 or 12 years old. And that record stood until I was about 18. No way. Yeah, on, on your own on lure. On my own
0: lure. What, what colour did you paint it? It was green, uh, it was
1: green with black
0: dots and, and a bit was, of orange on the belly. It was belly. A diving, like a yeah. little hard body. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And I reckon every super keen angle, like people who still fish like we do now and right and do that kind of thing, Dabbled in a little bit of lure making at yeah. some stage, even if it didn't really turn into anything. I'm, I'm sure we all did it, but it's to make one and then to go out and catch a fish on it that was a PB for what it eight like years, six or seven years. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and
1: that was that sort of fueled the obsession with lure making and also golden perch. I mean, I'd done a fair, I'd been fishing Windermere since about eight years old. I think Dad and I were doing annual trips with our with our with his his brother. Yeah, and um and we did a fair bit of bait fishing and a little bit of bobbing on the trees but I just got obsessed with walking the banks and, and chucking lures and we never really had all that much success, didn't really know around sort of how to work around it um, Yeah. Uh, but when I caught that one fish it really fueled the fire and I spent a lot more time making lures and a lot more time targeting golds. So dolphins. was
0: that your first fish on a lure? or No. So what no. was your first fish on a lure? Trout?
1: The first fish on a cast lure was a yellow belly at Lake Keepit. Okay. So I think I was about seven years old then. And um, I was with my family and we were bobbing yabbies in the trees, but I just stood at the front of the boat casting a Kokoda crank... Uh, Crawfish lure, yep. you know, with the big yep. wobbly arms. Yeah. Um, and I remembered very specifically, Dad said, "Just slow down a bit, because I was winding a bit too fast." And the minute I slowed down my reel handle, just crank. How's that on. for a lesson? Yeah, it was and I bet you remembered it. Oh, I still remember it to this yeah. day. Yeah, yeah.
0: Slow is key, isn't it, in the freshwater? Is, no, it really is. As a general rule of thumb, and that obviously comes from exactly what you did there. Slow is extremely important. It is
1: and i found especially with Golden Perch they're extremely prone to follow um, so just that slight change of speed in retrieve I mean even starting out with a little bit more aggression and then slowing down as you come closer to the boat can often trigger the bite. Yeah, They'll follow it for a long way but slow is definitely key um, and especially I find when you're fishing subtle presentations like on the bottom Dragging the lure across the bottom, essentially, is a really important factor in golden perch fishing for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we're going to touch on techniques in a minute and more in depth about that stuff, which will be really exciting and good to know. So that's where it started. So that trip to Keep It, was that you were, you were living in Canberra, weren't you? So yep. you'd, you'd go back up there because that's where your old man was from and yep. you knew the place yep. and you caught fish there. So then, now that you started to fish more, you, you would have got your license, yep. started driving. Where did it go from there? Did you just continue to expand? What was your favourite fish to target back then? Where did it go from there? Um, So when I, I think I was about 13 or
1: 14, I met a friend from up the road here at school. And we both, I think it was after lunchtime, I pulled out a fishing magazine to read in that, you know, like half an hour reading (laughs) time after school. And he turned around to me, he'd never spoken to me before, and he goes, are you into fishing? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, sweet. We live on the same street. Let's let's run down the river and have a fish one time. So you are me about the Bidji? Uh, the Malonglo just before it runs into the yep. into the BG down here, and um, and uh, yeah. So from that moment on, I had a best friend in school who was just as keen as fishing as me, and we spent a lot of time just exploring the area we could get to at that time. As we got a little bit older, his mum would drive us around town to all the different spots we'd checked out on the maps and bring back memories for me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we'd ride our bikes down to the river and basically spent a lot of time targeting golden perch and Murray cod down there. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth, um, just walking the Molonglo and Murrumbidgee rivers.
0: Uh, and it was lure fishing because you were, you were set on that from those early days of the excitement of catching a fish on a lure. It was. You weren't bait fishing, were you? No,
1: I've always been obsessed with lure fishing. Yeah. I mean, even every now and then I'd stop with a bait as a young fella and I'd always have a rod in my hand casting at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah. But lure fishing's always been the the driver for me, and um, it's definitely been something that I've spent more time thinking about than I can put on anything else on the yeah. planet. <laughs> yeah,
0: I feel like we have a lot in common. Oh, there is, <laughs> And definitely. with a lot of other, also, Aussies out there, love fishing. I think we're talking all on the same page. It's that whole how we grew up, the different things we did, and it all sounds very similar. We yeah. spend all our time just fishing. And it must be, what is it for you? What is it about fishing for you? Like, what is that addiction? Because an addiction. There's, there's probably two things for me. I suffer from anxiety
1: and depression, and it is an amazing way of, of mindfulness and, you know, just yeah. grounding yourself. So there's yeah. a lot of time spent on the water just deep in thought or even not in thought at all. Yep. And the other aspect of it is just that constant challenge. You know, Every day on the water can be completely different. You spend so much time thinking about it, coming up with theories, and you want to put those into practice. Yeah. And I think that's the most rewarding part of it for me is, is whether it's making a lure to, to sit a, fit a certain situation or if it's just coming up with a change in tactics or a different style a way of approaching a different situation to try and work out if there's key things that you can do to make, make the difference in that day's fishing. Yeah, and yeah. that's the challenge there. It's never been about the glory of the big fish for me. It's always been about just analysing things and, and trying to think about things from a different perspective, being a bit creative with mm-hmm. my fishing and then putting that into practice. And usually, you know, a lot of that creative thinking and thinking outside the box really pays off.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. That is powerful. And it's right, it's about setting a target for yourself and then trying to achieve that goal. And if that target is, you know, a 30-centimeter redfin yep. or to catch a fish out of a waterway you've never fished before...
1: Exactly. isn't How good's that feeling? Oh, it's one of the best feelings in fishing, and I, I highly recommend people do some exploring, especially if you live in an urban area. Um, there's so much water around. A lot of people would overlook, you know, drainage creeks or just stormwater ponds and, and any little pocket of water. A lot of them hold fish, and mm. it's. I've spent a lot of years bypassing them and just going... There's got to be a fish in there and then you know you start to go all right i'm going to go and try this spot and if you can get there and catch a fish out of it it's one of the best feelings isn't, ever.
0: It? Yeah. isn't it it does suck when you don't get one and it happens you go from spot to spot and go oh, there's nothing here nothing here. but when you go to a new spot you do the research you do the hard yards i've got an incredible story from a trip we did for this one spot in particular and when you finally reach and catch a fish it doesn't matter what size it is no you're like wow that was an achievement and
1: that opens up a whole other world of possibilities from that point on. And um, and another thing, as we were just talking about before, you can never properly predict what's gonna happen. So keeping an open mind when you're approaching those situations is always helpful as well. Like there's many times that I've looked at a, a piece of water and gone, there's gotta be a fish in there. And the first two or three times I go, nothing. You, you could almost yeah. assume there's no fish there. And then out of the blue, next trip, you know, you go and you hook into a bunch of them, you go, could not believe that those fish were actually there. Mm. Spent three or four trips catching nothing and not even seeing a fish, and then all of a sudden they just come out of the woodwork. So it really, you know, puts into perspective the fact that fish can really be elusive and, and hard to find, Yes, but the persistence and
0: actually just looking
1: at things differently
0: can really help in that sort of situation. Massive difference, massive difference. That is absolutely key, exactly what you said, 100%. So you've done that, you were doing trips with your mate down the Milongalo, the BG. Where did it go from
1: there? Uh, just spread out through not just ACT but anywhere in the country I so could get my
0: mitts on. Traveled, fished. Yep. In terms of fishing, what did you did you when did you start writing? Because uh, you've written for magazines, you've yep. written articles, published articles, and you're also a part of a group. team Gouda. Yep. Fishing. Yep. So when did all that start?
1: So I think I probably started writing articles when I was about 15. Um, okay. M- yeah. Never really took them anywhere, but started piecing them out and putting them into, into words and um, I think that was more so just to help me kind of get an idea of how it was as a writer and, and also just putting into, um, onto paper some of the theories that I've sort of proven in my yep. cha- challenging myself, if you know yep. what I mean. Um, I turned about 17 or 18, I met Hillian and Nobs from Team Gudang Fishing um, and we all just drove each other. We've all got, had this same like-minded attitude. We all wanted to 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 put things on paper or in video or on photos. Yeah, 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 As you as you do now, you're just basically trying to share what we learned from from that different perspective. And um, and we you know built a friendship over many years fishing together. We spent a lot more time chasing cod in those days um, and trying to piece together the puzzle of the Murrumbidgee River. Mm-hmm. And we we did pretty well out of that as well. Um, Later on down the track, we decided, I decided I was sort of spending a lot more time chasing other species and the boys were really still heavily focused on cod. So I decided to just sort of move away and start working on other pieces um, of my own ideas, which I've had for years and and slowly work my way into making perch palm as well. Yep. Um,
0: Yeah, that's perch palm plastics. Yeah. So that's your thing now. So on Instagram, people can follow you at at Perch Palm. Perch Palm. At Perch Palm. Yeah, I've changed my name recently
1: from Plastics because in the future we're going to be sort of spreading out across a few different avenues, not necessarily just focused on plastic lures, but a lot of terminal tackle and and other different pieces that we're we're sort of working on right now. So, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff up on the Instagram page,
0: and if you wanted to have a check it out. Yeah. Yep. So we'll talk about that in a minute and how all that started. Back to what you did with Tim Gudang. So what was it? it? Was just you guys basically fishing creating content and sharing it with people, writing articles, is that basically what it was? Yeah, we just,
1: you know, we, we all had this really strong um, urge to be creative and um, work on things while we were doing a lot of fishing at the same time. We were yeah. coming up with a lot of theories together and working through those sorts of patterns and trying to figure things out and putting them down on paper was something that Norbs was really doing a lot of. Yep. Um, I'm, a gra- I'm a graphic designer by trade, so that was my piece of the puzzle. And Hilly loved using a camera, so we all sort of worked together in that way. Um, and from you know just basically being out on the water as friends fishing, we could put something together that was relatively good quality and people would enjoy. And it went, you had a website from way back in the start and then mm. also magazines was a big part of that? Yeah, magazines and videos. We did a fair few videos. Um, over the space of time, we did one particularly long one. I think it was about forty-minute-long documentary on fishing Windermere back in the day. Watch that. Yeah.
0: Who knows? I don't know how many times. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. We um we worked really hard on that. It took us about a year. It wasn't you know it wasn't exactly what we were hoping for from the end of it because you can never come up with an idea and go and put it exactly into practice when you when you're talking about fishing. Yeah. But we had a few little concepts that we wanted to work with. We were doing a lot of fishing around that time with suspending jerk baits. And, um, and fishing super early in the morning, sort of just before the sun came up and having quite a lot of success. Um, and that was one of the things we wanted to focus on was that really early morning bite and then how we progress with our technique throughout the day or throughout the weekend. Um, so it goes from a little bit of that early morning suspend edge bite out to a bit of deeper work with TNs and stuff like that. Um, and just generally sharing just the vibe of how we felt on a trip. We always had so much fun and, yeah. and just really could not
0: we never wanted to go home, you know. It's so hard no. to let go of those things, isn't it? Isn't it? And then, so tell, yeah, so Perch Palm Plastics. Yep. On Instagram, it's Perch Palm. Where did that start from? And and what do you do? It's you create your own plastics, and they're very very unique. You've got a few sitting on the table here. How come? How did it start? Why did you want to start it?
1: I think I fell in love with soft plastics basically when Starla and Bushy launched Squidgies. I mean, yep. when they first burst onto the Aussie market, there was still a few plastics around like Mr Twisters. Dad always had some in the garage, but I think when I saw that Starla and Bushy had created their own line and I was just amazed by how many fish they catched and the, and the versatility of a soft plastic lure. Um, I started drawing them in my school books and working yeah. on designs from when I was a young kid. So it just took me a long time to figure out how I could actually make them. There's not a lot of information out there.
0: No, there's um, none. And, and like I said, every super keen young kid sort of dabbles in other chopping up a little timber lure in the shed or mm. maybe trying to pour their own plastics and that's as far as it goes because it is quite difficult to do it properly and you've gone all in on it yeah and you've you've figured out a great recipe for creating quality plastics which you've got here and you just really enjoy it don't you i love it it's uh another mindful act a mindful activity that i that i used um
1: sort of in my spare time yeah um and i uh, it's just been a passion of mine to create lures that catch fish for a long time and soft plastics have always just been at the top of my stable um, and I've always really enjoyed just the versatility of the baits and coming up with your own designs is really cool as well it's just something that's it's not done in Australia to the extent that i would ever sort of seen yeah um, and I've really really wanted to to create something that I could have a lot of versatility, a lot of variety. and People could basically pick up and catch any species of fish on.
0: So when did where the idea? When did the idea start? We're now in 2019. When did it start? When did you first have the thought? And then how long did that take to launch it? And when did you launch it?
1: Um, I probably had the the thought of making soft plastic lures when I was about 15 years old, yeah. which would have yeah. So that's yeah. 15 years ago. Um, and from then I just kind of kept drawing and coming up with recipes for, for designs and it wasn't until maybe four or five years ago that I actually did a little bit of work um, teaching myself how to use particular software to come up with the designs yeah, and then right. from then on it's just been a massive learning curve for the last four years. I've been you know, printing baits, uh, trying to make moulds, having failures. One of the major failures I had was when I was moulding the big one for the first time. It's about three kilos of silicon. And I didn't think about supporting my mold walls. So when I poured all that extra heavy silicon in, the mold collapsed and the kitchen was covered in three kilos of (laughs) sticky silicon. My wife saved that. She came home, well, she was actually home from work and she's like, oh, it's exploding. And she like stuck all this clay up and tried to fix it all. And you know, we came back and poured a little bit more silicon in there and managed to make the mold. But it was a pretty expensive mistake and a messy mistake. Um, And then, yeah, just a lot of trial and error, getting out there and fishing with them as much as I can to try and make sure that they work and they're catching fish. And yeah, it's just, it's been a very long process. But but enjoyable. Very enjoyable. Something super rewarding about making something, especially something that you've worked so hard to fine tune. Yeah. Um, And then I really can't say anything you know they're not the most amazing lures in the world but we've caught so many good fish on them it's hard to, hard yeah, to yeah. fall yeah yeah you know? yeah and that's
0: good so you, and it's something you're proud of
1: i am proud of it yeah it's definitely something that as in my working life it's been one of the biggest challenges i've had to overcome because, as I said, there's no information out there. You can ask people, but they're a little bit secretive. Um, yes. It's just been all, I'm going to just try this, and if it doesn't yep. work, I'll try it a try different it way.
0: And that's the stuff that people don't see. What you just said about what happened in the kitchen, the the stuff that goes wrong. The, like People might just see it. When, say, when I first saw you had these out... They just popped up and you're like, oh, he, Rory's making plastics. But you don't see that that idea come from five years ago. It's the same with what I'm doing. People go, oh, they've got a podcast. Yeah, well, it started four years ago. Yeah, And people don't realise the hard work that goes into it, but it's the passion you put into it that makes it worth it. You enjoy it yep. and then people, once it gets going, people get on the bandwagon. And you've, you've been selling good numbers. People have been enjoying the plastics and well, catching can, fish on them.
1: Yeah, like for sure. People love the plastics when they can get their hands on them. But the problem is... um. My molds aren't made for huge numbers, so I'm only able to make small quantities at a time. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, there's a fairly big waiting list for people who missed out on previous sales that I've had. Yeah. Um, but it just, you know, just keeping everyone informed and, and trying to make sure that people get the best opportunity to get them when they can um, has been really good. It's definitely not about the money at at, at all for this point. Um, it's just all about making baits and seeing the smiles on people's faces. And yeah. I really love, like, doesn't, I don't even have to be there. Just getting a photo from, from a customer is just the most satisfying feeling. It can yeah, turn yeah. a crappy day around.
0: Yeah, and yeah. that's almost probably better than you yourself catching one. Yeah. One, yeah?
1: Like, I, I much prefer to see other people catching them. Yeah. I mean, there's just not that many out there. So I I try to fish the baits as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, and that might be to my detriment every now and then, you know. I know that plastics don't catch fish all of the time and you've got to be versatile and you've got to be able to move around. Um, but I think I've, you know, just put a lot of persistence in, and work into them. And just by fishing them and having other people sort of start to see that they're working, um, yeah. it's definitely, it's definitely being
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I would agree. I would, I would have to say plastics are up there for myself as one of the top lures to pick. Yeah. If, if you were to come across a more lifelike versatile lure, like I know we have to use everything, but I would say if you have all your categories of your hard lures, your top topwater, your spinnerbaits, like your bladed lures, your plastics, I would say plastics would be my go-to.
1: Me too. I'd say, yeah, they've always been on the top of my tier. Um, and that purely becomes comes down to the versatility of them. I mean, there's so many different options, so many different yeah. color varieties. They're so easy to change around. Rigging is just one of those things that I love to play around with. So mm-hmm. a lot of people might have seen on my, my page, I do a lot of unique techniques that a lot of other Australians aren't into, but they're just derived from US or, or Japanese bass fishing techniques. Yeah. And, um, and they work just as well on any other species in the world. It's just not that well-known and not that widely available in Australia. So I love playing around with techniques. And sometimes just the change of the way that you put a hook in a bait can make all the difference in the bite.
0: So what's one of the techniques um, like, that are real out of the box with one of your plastics? Like, Explain one particular that you use for so, yellows or redfin.
1: Yeah, so probably the drop shot technique. Yeah, so um,
0: explain what that is so for people who don't know, yep. have no idea what it is, what is it, and what plastic do you use it with?
1: So a drop shot is essentially you know a, a finesse version of a Pat Noster rig. It's, yep. a, it's a sinker that's at the bottom of your leader or your main line. And a hook that's um, sat maybe 6 to 20 inches, depending on the depth that you're sort of fishing at. Sometimes we run them really high up above your weight. And your weight sits on the bottom and your bait sits just naturally unweighted up above it. So do you have the padanoster loop in the line? No, there's no no loop. It's directly to your line. So you use a palomar knot. Right. Um, and you bring the tag back over through the top of the eye of the hook so that it keeps the hook upright at all times that that way that gives you the best hook up rate the hook's always at the top of the fish's mouth yeah right um, and it, and it also sticks so i can you can sorry use basic, say, say what you're going to say it always what it always stays upright so the bait will always naturally stay horizontally with that line if yeah. you had a pattern off loop it would fall, fall down right okay and the bait um we use pretty much anything on a drop shot the, the most sort of effective drop shot baits I find are baits that don't have their own action. So swim baits will work. Little paddle tail swim baits like that will work if you're just gradually moving the sinker along the bottom or just g- gentle twitches. Yep. But a worm or a craw or a pintail minnow, which is something that I make, or a ribbon tail minnow, they both have their own unique action on a drop shot. They'll dance and dart around. They'll, um, they'll slowly flutter on the way down. And I think a lot of the time... Keeping the the bait away from the weight gives those fish just that little bit less visibility of anything unnatural, right. and then also just being able to suspend your bait right up of the bottom and let it fall naturally to the bottom without the weight dragging it down. Just that little bit of a slower flutter on the way so down that's gets the a lot key. of bites. Yeah,
0: that's the key with that technique. So rather than so, for example, when we fish in Blaring, this time of year we can sight fish the yellows in against the edges, or you know they're in there. Sight fishing is not too bad because you can see the reaction, but sometimes when they're in there, you've got this, it's not weed, it's the grass, but as the waters come up, the yep. grass is just, it's, you get grass on your lure. Mm-hmm. And if we are to fish a plastic, you've got to kind of keep it up and swing it through and then it's just You it Might be moving it a bit too fast so in that that's a technique where you'd use this because you could cast in, you can let your sinker hit the bottom, mm-hmm. your plastic's just sitting on top. And you're saying if you want it to hit the bottom, you can just drop the slack out and the plastic just falls to the bottom. That's exactly correct. And if you twitch it, you could twitch the plastic back up and not even lift the sinker.
1: Well, so uh, an American term is shake the bait, not the weight. Yeah, right. So It's a very common technique on largemouth and smallmouth bass. And the trick is, I mean, you're giving the bait, the the most perfect natural presentation you can. The only visibility is a fairly small drop shot hook. The sink is generally hidden either in grass or in a little bit of mud or silt on the bottom. So if you can just master that gentle shake of that slack line, that bait naturally falls and pops back up and and shimmies on that in that suspended sort of natural um,
0: sort of motion.
1: And those fish just can't handle it. And you,
0: you, your technique is you just shake it and twitch it all the way back to the... It depends on the fish, obviously, but yeah, and, and you use that around these areas? Yeah, but I
1: fish drop shot almost all year round. Generally, um, perch fishing, so for golden perch and redfin. Um, and we've, I've even fished and caught cod on drop shot as well. Yeah, wow. Um, but there's lots of different variety in, around the ACT here. And we've got, we've got lakes that are completely choked with weed. We've got lakes that are all gravel. We've got lakes that are silt and mud and... You know, there's just so many different options to fish, but if you're going to sort of pick any technique, I'd say that the drop shot always catches fish in in no matter what sort of situation you're in.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's not only, not only is it for areas with weed, you're getting above the weed, but even areas that don't have weed, you're giving the lure that natural presentation in that bottom column and you can never thought of that i know they've got those techniques and it's just never something i've thought about and thought i will do this for redfin or golden perch and i didn't realize exactly the purpose of it but that makes total sense and i feel like that's something i need to try up blaring
1: definitely give it a go man i think i'd say i don't think i've shown anyone a drop shot rig who hasn't gone on to catch just every fish they've tried to catch on it if you know what i mean like it, I do a lot of redfin fishing with it, but that's just purely because I do a lot of redfin fishing. Yeah. Um, but I've caught flathead and brim on the drop shot. I've caught just about everything that I've thrown at a drop yeah. shot at because it is just a plastic. And it's the only thing that's changed is the way that you're presenting that bait. Yeah. You're, you're taking away that weight, so it's not always falling nose down into the mud. Mm. It's sitting up off the bottom. You can run a, a dropper that's you know only two, three inches long. Yeah. And that bait, even if you're dragging the sinker along the bottom, just keeps it an inch or two up off the bottom, and the fish just track that without noticing that
0: that weight's dragging yeah. on behind it. It's and so when you chose, so when you're chasing, I'm just real interested. That's great. When you're chasing goldens and redfin, and how does the how does it cast? Does it cast alright? Like it casts beautifully? Cast like a, like a, would feel exactly the same as having a probably even
1: better. I reckon even better. Yeah, just because the weight's always at the end there. You know, yeah. like if you throw in a big bulky, say if you threw this hundred mil craw on a drop shot, that would catch air and that would be a Flop bit clumsy a bit. Yeah. But with like a natural worm or something like that, there's no there's no resistance in that, and the weight. Depends on the size of the weight that you throw throwing. So we go right down to like one thirty-two ounce in yep. tungsten. So they're tiny little weights. Right. Um, but I'll a majority of the time I'll fish a one eighth or a quarter just for casting distance if I'm off the bank.
0: And what is it? What's the weight? Is it just a? Yep. So just it's a sinker? There's sinker? lots of different it...
1: types of drop shot weights. So essentially I use either a stick weight or a teardrop weight. Right. Okay. Um, they both work pretty well on different types of bottom. So the stick weight's great for sort of rolling over sticks and logs and rocks and the teardrop's good for sand or anything that's just got a nice silty bottom. It'll just bury itself in that mud yep. and basically become completely invisible. But if you're throwing that in around rocks and stuff, they have the tendency to get locked up because they've got a fatter bottom, right? Yeah, um, but yeah, it's basically just a small, small weight in a different shape with a clip on the top, and you run a um not a sorry, a palomar knot to your hook, and however long the dropper is, depending on what depth you're fishing or where the fish might be and then clip your weight on and you're good to go it's that really is
0: easy. a very clever technique and no wonder you're catching good fish on it yeah um, that was really interesting so now tell me i just want to talk about his big plastic and yep. if you guys have seen any of rory's stuff on instagram you've seen these giant big plastics that thing is 250 mil mm-hmm. it is massive i'm guessing it's hard to cast but it looks Unbelievable under the water and it catches big fish doesn't it? It does.
1: So it's about They range a little bit because my mold moves a little bit So sometimes I'll put a little bit more plastic in than it should be. So sometimes it can be up to about 200 grams Um, And on yeah, yeah, so rigged up like this on a three-quarter ounce head uh, with the hooks Extra weight as well. It gets to about seven ounces. Yeah, so it's not that heavy in regards to a swim bait Um, We fish fairly heavy gear, so I fish a 50 pound rod with 50 pound monofilament. Yeah. Um, And Will fishes pretty much the same when he throws them as well. Um, And they are a they're big heavy bait. I mean, it hurts to throw them around all day, but they've definitely paid off for for the work. Yeah. So we've caught some really nice fish on them, more so Will than me. Unfortunately, I've just not been able to uh, commit to as much time on the water. Yeah. And I think you know. But I've been lucky enough to catch a few really nice fish on them, um, and it's definitely been a really exciting sort of way to fish. Just not only being my my first big swim bait that I've made, but also just seeing other people slam and fish on them. Big fish on them, yeah. yeah. Kids caught some big jews on them up in, up yeah, in the right.
0: central coast. So that's so cool because I've I've seen them. I've se- like this is the first one I've seen in person, and it's just gnarly looking. Like it is a mad looking piece of work, but it's and the and the tail on it is just huge. But that gives off that massive thump huge thump Underwater. water
1: yeah so when you're rolling these baits you can actually really feel the thump at the end of the rod so yeah it's definitely an interesting plastic i designed them specifically to have a a super solid body roll yeah and funnily enough we've done a lot of fishing with them over the last 12 months or so but we've also had a lot more success getting fish raising fish from from around gugong especially yeah on these baits even if they're not committing to actually eating it but we're getting follows we're getting nudges and bites and stuff yeah especially in like that start of december last year there was a lot of fish um paired up spawning in these in these creek arms and you, the minute you threw one of those in there they'd come out and attack it and chase it yeah um, where we weren't getting those sorts of reactions from a hard bait we were getting only those reactions from the big soft Yeah. Bait. so yeah. it's been been an interesting way to fish and um, it's been really cool to see a
0: couple of really nice fish caught on them. Yeah, yeah, that's always the go. You create your own lure. People catch fish, they're happy. That's as good as it gets. So before we move on to talking about some hot spots and tips for Canberra, tell me about Perch Palm Diaries. Oh, yeah, my videos? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's just a little thing that you do with the plastics. What is it, just a bit of fun?
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I really wanted to just kind of, kind of document my lure making and some of my fishing journeys as I've been making the lures and fishing with the lures. They're not all specific to perch palm. I mean, I've got a few little clips in there that we've caught fish on other things, but um, yeah, it's just basically documenting my life as well as I can with the amount of time that I have to edit and film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'll definitely pick up over the next 12 months again. I think I want to start filming as much as I possibly can. Um, and I've got a bunch of footage sort of saved from the last few months where I haven't released an episode, but yeah, a bit of fun, a little yeah. bit more um, just to give people a little bit more idea of how I go about doing them, um, how I make them, and how I fish them at the yeah. same time.
0: They're cool videos. If you haven't seen them before, jump on check them out. Where are they? YouTube? Yeah, YouTube. YouTube.
1: Check out Perch Palm or Perch Palm Diaries. Yep. Um, and they should pop up. There's five or six episodes yeah, up there. Yeah, yeah, I had a yeah. look
0: at one um, just before we did this episode, and they're, they're put together really well.
1: Oh, thanks, man. I did. Uh, I'm a digital media designer so I've done a fair bit of video work over the years and yeah. it's just something that I've always loved doing but never really had enough time. To do that with the fishing. Like, yeah. Do
0: it every day for a job but don't get time to, I know exactly what you're talking And all that. the
1: other stuff on top, you know, I just keep piling stuff to do on top of myself and, yeah. and get caught up. Like,
0: I really want to do this, I really want to do that. Then, yeah, it comes down to making money and putting food on the table that's right that's right that Happens to all of us but um so let's talk about some fishing spots some hot spots sure. canberra um there's a lot like there's a fair few people here and i'm sure a lot of our listeners are based in this area and there is incredible fishing around this area so what are some of the key waterways you said the Low and the bidgie yeah they're worth fishing 100 chase and cod what's the what's the technique if someone's in this area wants to go chase fish haven't really had much success what's something you'd recommend to do on the (laughs) bidgey? Probably just put in the
1: time to be honest. Right. Okay. I mean I could put you know a a finger on a few different spots that you could have um, a lot of success on it would be generally walking as far away from public access as possible. So that is key? That is definitely key in this day and age when I first started fishing the bidgey there was nowhere near as many people fishing and you know there was a lot more activity around those public access areas but yep. these days you know there's a lot of keen young anglers out there there's a lot of people fishing i think the biggest tip for fishing canberra cod is just to move as much as you possibly can um one of the best techniques that we ever had in the biggie was definitely top water it's top a great top water river right. um there's a lot of boulders, a lot of rocks. I was going to
0: say, it's very gorge-like, yeah, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it is a gorgey, sort of fairly shallow river. It's, it's deep sh- in parts. Yep. I mean, we've got some holes that we're fishing 50 foot of water. No. And we're catching fish in, on surface in those holes. Actually, um, I caught a metre fish out of 50 foot of water on the surface. And that was an impressive strike. He must have come from very deep because he got about six foot out of the air when he took the bait. It's no way. Coolest cod strike I've ever seen. Um, didn't fight like a meter. He kind of came straight to the boat, but the strike was just amazing. The whole yeah. body come out of the water. Um, top water's definitely been one of those one of those techniques that's turned a lot of cold hard days around. Yep. Um, we could be throwing subsurface all day long and switch to a top water in the middle of the day and still get a bite. It's yeah, right. It's just one of those rivers where they seem to be really keyed into what's on the surface. Yeah. Um, and especially in around that winter time, there's not a lot of bait under the water. There's, um, they, they clear them out generally through that late part of summer. There's a lot of the carp, there's very few redfin in the Murrumbidgee River. Um, there's the odd crayfish and shrimp in the, in the warmer months, but they tend to deplete over the, the yeah. space of winter. So I think those cod are really keyed into, you know, terrestrial animals, birds and water rats and stuff like that. We've caught a few cod in the Bidgee that have had, you know, entire water rats and no platypus way. in their mouth. So... Yeah, they're really keyed into those big creature baits.
0: Yeah, wow. And, and it could, for someone who's never fished before, is it a bank walk, kayak only, or like can you put a boat on it, or it's just too shallow and rocky for that?
1: I'd say kayak and, and bank walking, yeah. generally. There's a few spots that you could get a boat in if you could get access with a car. But um, yeah, we've done a few really amazing kayak trips through from about Uriara Crossing down towards Buranjuk, and there's pretty, pretty amazing water, but you've got to plan it pretty well. Uh, yeah. It can be quite a dangerous river if the water gets up, and um, it's quite a stretch of river to, to navigate by kayak, but God. bank walking is definitely the key. It's never a really wide river, so there's generally always somewhere you can access that's got yeah. a, little, a nice little bit of cover or a casting distance from one end of the bank to the other, um, and the Malonglo River is even easier to walk. Uh, there's probably more access on the Molonglo than there is on the biji And the Molonglo, what's in it? Um, yeah, still cod, goldens, red. Yeah. There's there's more redfin in the in the Molonglo River than there is the Murrumbidgee. There's a smaller population of native fish and still obviously got your carp in there as well. Yeah. But um, the Molonglo was just purely about access for us. It was easy to get down there. We could walk basically all the way upstream and, and yep. fish just every pocket that we could.
0: Because it does it run out of Burley Griffin? It
1: does. runs into Burley Griffin and then, and then out. And out underneath Scrivener Dam.
0: And you're fishing the bit between Burley Griffin and the and the beach. Yep. Yeah, right. And and you can walk and what's what's it back in the day or when you used to fish it, you don't fish it a whole heap now?
1: I haven't fished it for a while but I still fish it once a year or so. Yeah.
0: Yep. What's the technique? Like is it spinnerbaits, hard bodies, what are you using, top water?
1: Yeah, it's generally, it's been top water again. It's top those. water too. Yeah, yeah, it has been. Um, I've done, my first cod I ever caught was, was caught out of there. That was actually on a Celter chasing redfin. <laughs> and that was an 85 centimetre fish on a you know, really light line. And that sort of set the trend for targeting those fish on small lures. Um, when we were young, we'd spend a lot of time chucking you know, stump jumpers and yep. soft plastics even, catching cod and yellow belly on those. But then as I sort of started to play around with top water a little bit more, that river turned around for me. Yeah. So there was very few cod caught in the in the years leading up to when I discovered how good top water was on cod. Right. And then I spent a couple of years down there just catching pretty much all my cod on surface, homemade surface lures. Yeah. Or yeah. And back in the days, um, the mantis, the kingfisher yep. mantis, was that what's that? Key bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was for everyone. I caught a fair few cod on on the in the Malonglo on the on the mantis. On one, the one
0: ten, so. the bigger one, or yeah. the smaller? Yeah. The one ten. Yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, definitely a top water area in the rivers around here.
0: And is it is it a late Arbo night thing in the Molonglo for the top water and is it anywhere specific or you're basically fan casting everywhere and they come from anywhere or is it fishing the willows or the structure or
1: That's a really tough question to answer because if you if we're talking about, say, the Molonglo from Scrivener Dam to the junction with the Bidji, it changes contours right. and, and structure. It's just so much. Yep. You know, you've know you got riffle runs, you've got shallow um, sandy flats, you've got deep rocky gorge, you've yeah, got right. shallower pools that are covered in timber with a few willows and stuff like so that. So it mixes so, up quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, it does change quite a lot. I'd still say the best success I've had is by sticking to yeah working working with the rocks and and the deeper water yeah um, we've still caught fish in obviously quite shallow sandy pools but generally those rockier holes are the places where those fish are going to going to hold up
0: yeah 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 i've done one session there but chasing carp on fly mm-hmm. at the very bottom where it meets the, yep. the river it was quite clear too and that was quite fun but we really didn't find much deep water so obviously you, you know where your cotter are going to be concentrated because it's going to be that deeper pools. We've caught
1: them obviously we've caught them in six inches of water right up in the high in the high flow parts of the rapids but that's kind of a seasonal change that that'll depend on what's happening at that particular time. Yeah. As a general rule I would probably stick to anywhere that's got a little bit of shady cover a little bit of overhang or a rock yep. or a, a few holes. Um, that's in the, in the rivers, that's de- definitely going to be there.
0: Yeah. So, now what I want to touch on is googong. That's mm-hmm. the one I really want to talk about. Um, I've never fished it, I'm going to fish it very soon. Tell me what's it like and, and what tips do you have for chase, chasing the fish in now? I know you've got three different species. That you, that you target? Do you target the trout in there?
1: Uh, we've targeted the trout in there. Yeah. Um, there's also silvers in there as well, but so they very rarely show up. Yeah. Um, there'd be some absolute monster silvers in there, but yeah, there's right. there's some big
0: trout in there too. There's yeah. a big trout there. Yeah, Huge so the three, three we're going to touch on, obviously, the two natives and the redfin. Yeah. So Gugong, it's, it's electric only, isn't it? It is. So yeah. how does that work from a fishing point of view? Is it bank access or do you guys, can you stick the boat on there without... No, the boat's totally fine. Um, you, can, you can take a boat without a permit on
1: there as long as it's electric power only, no fuel, no outboard. Right. If you, if you want to take a bigger boat, say, for instance, you've got a, a mounted, you know, 40 horsepower four-stroke or something like that, it just requires a permit from, I'm not sure it actually governs the permits, but you can right. look it up on Google, um, and a high-vis bag to be covering the prop and the, um, and the gearbox of the, right. of the motor, and it has to be out of the water. But basically, yeah, having the right boat set up or at least the battery capacity is extremely critical. Yeah, it would
0: be. So what do you fish on the lake out of?
1: So Will's boat at the moment is a 380 Explorer. So it's a nice little tinny, so it's just perfect for putting around in. Keeps the weight down. We've got uh, 420 amp-hour batteries
0: in there. 420 amp-hour batteries.
1: Yep, and sometimes five, just depending on how windy it's going to be for that day. Um, Generally, we run through two to three batteries a day. We move around yeah. a lot, we, we cover a lot more ground than a lot of the other people who stay around that main base and not go too far, which is safe, trust me. Yeah. It can get really rough out there at times. Um, and yeah, that's generally like a really comfortable fishing boat out of Gugong. You're not yeah. panicking about battery power. You've got all the, all the necessary power you need for electronics and, and that makes fishing out of there a lot easier. It is still super slow. So you're putting along at four to six k's an hour everywhere you go. If you want to get from one spot to the next spot, you just got to be prepared to sit down. And just
0: adds another element of hard work, doesn't oh it? Oh, yeah.
1: And Gugong's really tough fishery at the best of times, and it's beaten so many people that I know over the years. Just, you know, relentless fishery. Even Norbs and I had, I think, two seasons there where we went for probably 10 trips for the season and didn't get a bite. Wow. So that's like 200 hours without a bite. Yeah, that's crazy. And the funny thing was we got right to the very end of that second season without catching any fish and Norbs hooked up. His spinnerbait was hanging over the end of a tree. So when he, when he hooked up, there was a lot of weight and the fish was just hanging on the end. We were like, oh, this is big. And when it came out, it was like 50 centimetres. And we were like, that's 200 hours for one 50 centimetre fish. <laughs> and then the next day, another good bloke, Ashley Barber, shows up and gets a 108 off the same stretch. No way. Yeah, So that's just how it is. And it can be a really tough fishery, but so rewarding for the people who put it in, put in the
0: time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's the electric that you've got on the front with all those batteries? Is it just is a uh, twelve volt?
1: Two electric. So 55, 55 pound motor guide on the front of wheels boat and a 55 pound transom mount at the back. And sometimes we'll step it up to, I think we've been borrowing a Haswin 130 pound um, rear transom mount. Yeah. And that hammers, that gets us, you know, about seven or eight Ks an hour. When we're running, it's just 24 that single, volt?
0: That one is 24 volt. So you run power from two batteries when you use at that, that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's helpful. Hundred percent. Yeah,
1: it, 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 one kilometer an hour makes a big difference when you're when you're on the water. <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely just been really helpful to get us to the spots we wanted to fish in the earliest possible time because it's the hardest thing. Gugong is gated from in uh, in non daylight savings time. I think it's it opens at 8 a.m. and closes at 6 p.m. And then in daylight savings time it's 8 a.m to 8 p.m
0: right so you cannot with you cannot get on the
1: water before eight no well sometimes the gate will open a little bit before eight sometimes he's there a little bit earlier and you're lucky enough to get through but, but um, the
0: sun's well and truly out yeah every day makes it tough
1: there's a couple of days a year just around the change of um, of the daylight savings times and the end of closed cod season where it's like just the end of August there, where I think the last week you get a couple of days where you can fish into just that prime little oh, bit of darkness. Man, that's hard. But then you have though. to rush back to the boat uh, back to the boat ramp and get out before the gate shuts.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes it real tough. And do you think if you could fish in the dark, because, for example, I've had chats to some people of comparisons blaring versus Google on where it's harder to catch fish. Well blaring because gugong you caught her in the day like yeah. they've got to be and it's in tough day. if if i was to just fish those daylight hours in blaring i'd it'd be very similar but we crack some cracking fish and they're all in that first light or in yeah. the dark so do you reckon it'd be much better fishing if you could fish in the dark i'm sure yeah, yeah I'm... there's no doubt
1: about it in my mind that if you could get out there during the, the dark hours you'd catch a lot more of the cod um i've fished blaring a lot too and i know how tough that is i've put them on par with each other. Yeah. But Gugong's limitations make it just that little bit more challenging. A challenge, it's the same with Goldens. I mean, once you get past that early spring rush in the Goldens, that can be really hard to catch yeah. in either in winter or in the in the height of summer. So you've only got, you know, like in the height of summer you've only got the day the part of the day which is forty degrees. Yeah, and that that can be super out.
0: tough. But it can also be amazing fishing. So you just never know. It it, it would make you learn a lot. It would really force you to just figure out how to do it because you're out there, you've only got these hours, how yep. am I going to trick these fish? That's so w- what are some key tips other than getting away from the main area, is there any form of struck, we're talking about cod here, chasing trophy cod. cod, best time of year, best sort of structure to look for and how to fish, what yep. lures?
1: Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, we've had a lot of success fishing soft, so we've, we still throw on a, a big hard swim bait every now and then or a, or a spinner bait but they've seen a lot of those lures over the last few years so fishing yeah. something soft whether it be as big as the 25 perch palm yeah. or even just a, a, a little bit smaller like an 18 centimeter RIP shad or yeah. something like that FX Fury would be good. Just that subtle soft presentation seems to draw a lot more attention from those fish than a big noisy rattling lure. They're they're uh, very clear water fish. They're Water's super clear. aware of their, their surroundings. Yeah. Um, they're generally quite aware of what what they're looking at when they when they see it. But we found that the big soft swim baits over the last two or three years have been pretty key into getting the bites. And two, just don't overlook every spot you go past. Like, Gugong is absolutely loaded if- to a point I cannot uh, explain how many cod are in that lake. But they are everywhere and they will bite eventually. That's pretty much the only tip I can give you. There's what? nothing really key about the lake. There's no real specific structure that I've ever found that's just proven. Is it
0: always full? Is the lake always no, full? It's or it's dropping can... quite fast so right what's now. So it, what's it at now? It's
1: at uh, 50 and maybe 55
0: Is that on a lower sort of percent over the last 10 years? Is that like low
1: hard to explain because gugong has gone through a few different periods over the last few years so previous to the 2012 rain floods yep. you know basically the drought breaking it was down at like 20 30% and it was like that for, super ages. Low yep. f- for a long time um, choked with weed the edges were almost unfishable you could only really fish the place yeah. from a ba- uh, from a boat uh, and then the floods came up and the fishing fired for a couple of months after the floods, but then a lot of the trees and stuff that were on the banks started to decompose and all of the edges became basically void of oxygen yeah. and void of life. The fishing became really tough for a while. Uh, it's, it's clearing back up again now. It's still got slight stain to it. And the stain was from all that? From the trees de- uh, yeah. decomposing. Uh, and now it's down below the tree line again. So the, all those trees that were completely under submerged are almost all out of water now. And they're all dead now, though, aren't they? Yeah, they're so the, dead. Water, the water quality will be increasing. It's definitely improved a lot over the last probably three years. The water's almost back to its original clarity. The, the only difference is Gugong used to be 30-foot visibility like Blowering, different substrate on the bottom so it was a little bit darker and harder to see in those deeper stretches but yeah it's just still that slightly bit green right now yeah and it just hasn't quite gotten back to how it was Was the fishing better when it was clear, clear? No, it's
0: much tougher. Yeah, so it's not too bad at what it is. Oh, 100%. Still,
1: the fishing in the last three years, even though the water's been slightly, like, slowly dropping, has still been the best fishing I've experienced in
0: Google. Yeah, Yeah, nice. And because you're fishing those daylight periods, are you fishing deeper? Are the fish shallow, or...? No, they're not. (laughs) So where are they? They can be
1: anywhere in the lake, but at the same time... What's your go-to? I can't even say, Reese, because it changes literally every day. Right, so you're
0: fishing, when you're casting, you're casting in against the banking, fishing it down through all the depths, trying to figure out what depth
1: they're at? Yet again, it depends. Like, a lot of our latest successful trips have been really looking at the fish and, and trying to determine where they are. Right. The use of a high quality sounder has been extremely helpful into yep. finding the fish, but it doesn't really help you catch them no, when they're it there. Doesn't. Um, so it's just been basically about trying to find the concentrations of fish yeah. and where they're at and working on those on any particular day, trying to keep your head in where they are every time you go out and trying to monitor their movements and yep. try to figure out exactly where they're gonna be. So, Generally with the cod, just purely because we're fishing quite bigger baits, we'll sit parallel to a bank and work along the edge. Yep. But they can be anywhere from thirty metres down up to within the top Shallow. fifty centimetres of the surface.
0: So they can they they do vary where they sit because that structure is all through there. So how do you go? It's got quite a lot of timber in it. How do you go with the Not plastics? At the Not at the moment. No. So, so you're fishing rockier stuff at the minute?
1: Generally weed edges at the moment. Right. Yeah, it's dropped right back down to below the tree line and we've got a, a weed growth starting to show up in that sort of you know that two meter to three meter mark it's starting to push down into five or six meters so sometimes you'll get to a bank that looks like a nice sheer rock cliff and you cast anywhere between that three meters from the edge and you're fouling up right okay it all depends on what the conditions are doing at the time trying to just give that lure the best possible time in the water so yeah. by picking your casts and working either parallel if you're working along the edge of a weed bed or yeah. sitting out off a point and working on either side of the point and bringing it parallel along the edges of the weed on that point is definitely a key.
0: So do you find that you've, you fish are on the bottom like you've got to concentrate on that bottom couple of meters? In the bottom
1: that... probably three meters.
0: Yeah okay so yeah. same for cod anywhere really? Generally it's that yeah. bottom area where they're going to be they're not going to be sitting up high.
1: Sometimes you'll see them up around the surface but they're not going to be the fish you're going to catch. They're yeah. going to be the fish that you cast anywhere near and they'll spook. Spook, So yeah, you, you generally want to find the larger concentrations of fish out in maybe that 6 to 12 metre mark and work those. That's probably the best tip I have is to pick the areas that you can actually fish the most effectively yeah. instead of just focusing on the structure because there's not a huge amount of structure in the lake. There's a few rocky points and stuff like that but generally, you're going to find most of the fish are going to be patrolling or cruising a bank, especially the ones that are feeding. Right, the ones that are feeding, yep. yeah. So, season-wise? Late late winter. Winter is... Yeah, for yeah. big baits, for sure. Yep. In summertime, you'll catch cod generally pretty much just by catch as right. targeting targeting the smaller fish. They're really hard to, to target on big baits it in summertime. Because there's a lot of food around? Huge amounts of food. Yeah, right. Yeah, so they become super, super fixated on redfin during that sort of post-spawn yeah. period, yeah, um, and that, that redfin they're chasing is only 60 to 80 mil long. And
0: then if you're going to try and represent it, you're going to be mixed in with the thousands, yeah, well, that's of thousands it. of redfin, so but it's hard.
1: You, you've got things like TNs that will catch cod all year round um, yeah. in Gugong, because they're feeding on crawfish and redfin, both around that sort of same size, 60 to 80 mils. Yeah. Um, Violent, violent sort of reaction, reactive, reactive, yep. aggressive retrieves will catch your fish.
0: Yeah, righto. Yeah. Cool. So key is winter though. If you're chasing those big, big fish if you want with to, big lures, yeah. Yeah, if you want to chuck, chuck a big bait out. Same as, as most lakes. Yeah, yeah. So what about the goldens? Any key fishing style for the goldens is is spring key. Do they, did they have a good spring bite like other lakes?
1: Yeah, it's got a. It can have a really amazing spring bite, but it can change every year. So you can have one you know, one amazing season doing one particular thing. The really? next year you come along and you're like, yep, yeah, we think this is going to be happening again. And then you basically back to square one, got to figure them out, find out where they are,
0: what they're doing, what they're feeding on and try and try and mimic. So it's not just where they are. It's no. you got to figure out one lure might be different. And do you reckon that's got a lot to do with the water height? Uh, I think it's more so to
1: do with the food. So the food changes just, each and, year. Yeah, it does. Like wow. there's an enormous amount of food in there. So we've got it's, it's sort of on the cusp of an alpine lake. I mean, you've got a really sort of cold water fishery in winter where trout and stuff thrive. You've got a lot yep. of aquatic insects in spring, so mud eyes and dragonflies yeah, right. and lots of different stuff that the fish will key in on that mm-hmm. you can't necessarily represent that well with yeah. a lot. Um, but they've also got a, a huge crawfish population. So monitoring those sorts of things, watching where the fish are moving to, and what type of substrate they're sitting on at that particular time can be extremely helpful. You can see fish, but they might not be the ones that you're looking for. So trying to figure out exactly where the bait is and what they're feeding on and how to actually represent that the best to those fish is key. And I think in Gugong, the quant- quantity of fish compared to say like Windermere for golden perch is... It's up there, but the amount that you catch is nowhere near as high. I don't think anywhere is like Windermere. No, the place is stupid. But the quality in Gugong is. I've seen some, Next eh? level. So that's one of the things. It's like yeah, Windermere is an amazing fishery. I fished it my whole life, and I I love going there. But when it comes to big goldens, I don't think that you can really beat Gugong.
0: Yeah right.
1: Yeah, it just it's a much harder fishery. That's, yeah, that's the one thing people have to sort of get in their minds. It's not like, you know. Everyone can sort of go up to Windermere and if you've got the right information, yep. you can figure out where the fish are because they are literally everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in Gugong, they can be super isolated, really keyed into one particular technique. Yep. And if you don't sort of figure that out and you're not on the, on the money with it, you can have just fishless days after fishless yeah. days. Yeah. And you know, there's been people out there the last few weeks when we've been out there catching them, we've been keyed onto specific groups of fish and following them around since like July. Wow. And just watching them. Caught a few in winter, but later on in the spring, once things started to warm up, we just like, yep, we know these groups of fish are here. We're gonna to return to them and try and figure out how to catch them. It took us like two days to figure out how to actually get them to bite. We could see them all, there was hundreds of them.
0: So do they, do they move far? Like how do you know it's the same group?
1: Um, th- this was sort of concentrated in one particular arm so we're just watching them every week that we go
0: out you You find them and they're in there somewhere they're usually fairly close to where they're kind of watching them move upstream as they go oh so you're keyed into the fact that we're getting warmer weather so you know they're going to be further up well they're going to be slowly moving their ways to where they were yeah but
1: they they kind of moved into this this long arm in july i think we found a big group of fish there we caught two out of them and we were like all right we'll return to that spot once it warms up a little bit they seem to be switched on and sort of concentrated in this one area
0: because they follow the current so as they come in to start breeding in spring their natural instinct is to follow any moving water so they're going to be moving up arms Arms, yeah so does does it have what feeds Gugong
1: Uh, the Queanbeyan River and does it just flow in naturally it does there's not a lot of water up the river at the moment I I haven't been way up the back of the lake to to see how far the Water is coming down, yeah, um, but I'd assume that it's fairly low up that end of the right. dam.
0: But there's still water coming in, and then there are other creeks that feed in as yeah, well. There's a few
1: creeks, there's Burra Creek, and a couple of smaller ones that just basically only fl- flow when it's raining, yeah. Um, and the the goldens have been known to spawn in there naturally in the creeks when yep. there's enough rain. There's I don't think we're water. gonna get it this year, no. I no. think the goldens at this year are probably preparing themselves to to maybe spawn, but they're not quite. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get the rain. Yeah,
0: no, what they do is they, if they don't get the flow, they just reabsorb their eggs mm-hmm. as, as energy and then they just keep on going, whereas yeah. cod have to lay them. So that's what's really interesting you made me think about is the difference between Gugong, you've got natural flowing water coming in so you can kind of pick what goldens are going to do and where they're going to be compared to blaring like blaring is just so hard to work them out because it's it's got a wall flow. it's got a wall at the top and they just dump water in yeah so there is water there for them and they do move up but that is sectioned off you can't even fish that section yeah and also the water coming out of juniper is freezing so cold so yeah. they're probably not in there anyway so those fish are real hard to work out but they do have a key bite period in november so when that water temp hits 18-19 they school mm-hmm. and pre pre-spawn um, you can get them yep. in school in big numbers. Do you get that in Googong? Can you get a big run of fish where they're schooling up and they just smash everything, or is it just not like that at all? Yeah, you can. You can definitely get them. I wouldn't say pre-spawn, though. They're a lot harder to, to
1: find pre-spawn. But post-spawn, when they come back into the lake or when they've come back onto the banks after pairing up and trying to find their yeah. their mates, um, you'll find the fish can just explode on every bank in the entire lake, yeah, and wow. you can't miss. But it's rare and it happens maybe once every couple of years. If they, maybe, maybe it is if they have a successful spawn. I'm not sure. But there's definitely periods of change in Gugong that I can't put to any other lake. Yeah, so are. with Windermere, it's gradually been you know, years and years of, of people fishing and, and the, the popularity of the place has been pushing people either side of that spring bite period yeah. and working out ways to catch them. Um, to avoid the people but you can yeah. still kind of say Windermere is going to have its October bite period Mad you know? bite. the yeah. only problem is the 20s. Um like yeah. there's just too many people there throughout. Yeah, but um, with Gugong it doesn't get anywhere near the pressure and the food source is just so incredibly high in there that they can just really be super temperamental
0: and yeah yeah but that's the fun that's the challenge especially if you're local so if you're, if you're in how far is it from well it depends where you're in canberra but yeah how far is it for you from well from where i'm living now it's about
1: 15 20 minutes geez that's not too bad no it's not bad will, will lives about five minutes from the boat ramp
0: yeah nice <laughs> yeah so that's pretty awesome so you drive up meet him up there yeah on the water early oh yeah at his house and have a coffee on the way down yeah. yeah yeah and so he fishes it quite a bit yeah he does and and loves the place and if you've, say you've got a kayak, you can still catch fish not far from where you put it, yeah? 100%, yeah. yeah. It can it would, be one of
1: those places where you don't need to look past the area around the boat ramp to catch yeah. good fish, you know. We see heaps of people just out there bank, bank fishing in that, if they do, lucky enough to sort of hit that prime bite period on goldens you know they're catching 64 65 centimeter goldens from the boat ramp yeah wow yeah it's just really dependent on what's going on in that particular year yeah this year is very different to last spring
0: so have you fished it in the last month yeah and how's it been um it's been good if you know what you're doing and where to go so you've caught fish oh yeah we've caught heaps of fish you've caught them and the technique is finding them basically
1: Finding them and working out exactly what they're doing at the time, and also trying to figure out how to fish for them because it's so weedy at the moment. They just can be buried in weed. You can see them on the sounder, but getting a
0: lure anywhere near them is is very hard. And you're using plastics. Is yeah. that your technique? Is the technique you explained to me earlier? Is that uh, a not the drop you're shot? No? We're
1: fishing a Texas rig, so it's a weedless sliding bullet sinker. Right on a on a weedless hook. On a, on a crawfish or even a small fish profile. We were fishing the grubs for the first time. We caught a couple. Um, and then we realised, we already knew they were chasing craws. So we, once I made a few of these, because I had none, um, I went home after we caught a few on the grubs, made a few craws, went back out there the next day and we caught heaps on them.
0: So what's the Texas rig? It's a, it's a bullet Yep, head. so it's a
1: sliding tungsten bullet sinker. We don't have any any stopper on there or anything. Just allow it to slide all the way up the line. And I usually fish straight through fluorocarbon for that. So I don't have a leader knot or anything. Um, and it just gives me a little bit more flex in the line for when I set the hooks. Yep. Um, and also the, the key with that technique is Basically, you're allowing the sinker to slide away from the bait. So it's similar to the drop shot in, in the sense that that sinker will find its way to the bottom before the bait does. Right. The bait will just naturally fall under its own weight.
0: At the at the last meter or so. Yeah, right, generally. Okay. once
1: As soon as that sinker hits the bottom, this is free to fall under its own weight. So you,
0: you keep in tight line or you give it a bit of slack while it sinks to allow it to do that? Usually
1: allow allow a lot of slack. Right. Yep. Yeah. So similar to the way I'd fish um, this shake and bake technique or the way the other boys were fishing, is just generally shaking that slack line. That'll give the bait just a tiny little bit of movement on the spot and then even a little pop or a rip just to get it up off the bottom and let the sinker realign itself, Ah, fall back down, and then the bait will just naturally fall So what
0: kind of hook do you put in the the plastic?
1: So usually, uh, depending on the size of the bait, um, probably an EWG offset worm hook. Right, so, it's, a, it's like a weedless hook. Yeah, weedless hook, yeah. And you rig it like it's weedless? Exactly the same way you'd rig a worm or anything texposed. So we just put the point of the hook back inside the plastic and the fish bite down and, and re-expose that hook. And Yeah, yeah the hook-up rate's nowhere near as good as if you were fishing, you know, a Vibe or a Blade or something like that. You'll still miss the odd bite and you'll feel a lot more bites come through that you won't connect to and you will have no weight to but then every now and then you know you'll know the fish has got it in his mouth. But
0: you've got to yeah you've got to be able to fish those areas that otherwise you're not going to catch them at all. No because you're going to snag up. Yeah exactly. Especially that technique so when you when your plastics hit the bottom you're shaking it so it comes back and meets the sinker. Eventually meets the sinker. And then you feel the weight of the sinker and you give it a rip and then it realigns and then you've got another foot to jiggle it. That's correct. Yeah, right. And that works... That works super well. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, I think
1: a lot of it comes down to just allowing the bait to naturally fall back to the bottom. It just gives it so much more suspense in the fish's face. And then also, without having the, uh, the weight connected to the bait there, it's not plummeting straight into the weed it's actually allowing it to sit on top of the weed and, and work its way across the top of the weed until it meets the sinker again.
0: Yeah, right. So why do you use that technique at the minute in blaring compared to the other technique you explained earlier? What's Yeah, what's... Sorry, Googong. Thanks for that. That's right. I used to say blaring all the time. So in yep. Googong, what's the difference between the two? You've explained them, but like in terms of when you approach, why would you pick one over the other?
1: Um, I think just purely because of the bait that I'm using. So right. I, I could definitely run a craw on a drop shot as well, which would be great but the fish are also right near the bottom.
0: Oh, and it's a, a cross. So it's like a yabby. So, yeah. you're, so you're representing something that is on the bottom. On the bottom. So it's not the spot you... F- it's not like the type of bank you're fishing. It's more what kind of plastic you've got on. Yeah. Like what are you representing?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would fish them on a, on a drop shot rig if I knew that the fish were suspending, you know, a foot or so off the bottom on a drop shot. But at the moment, they're really close to the bottom, so there's no need to be running a drop shot. Yep. And, giving, and also, I could run a drop shot on a weedless hook, but I'd prefer to run a Texas rig with a weedless hook, I think, just because it allows me to fish right in the structure and, um, and yeah. not, not worry about just an exposed hook
0: yep. getting caught up. So the, weed, so the Texas one, the weedless hook, it's getting to the bottom, so it's going through the structure, whereas yeah. you drop shot, you can afford to have an exposed hook because it's sitting up yeah, off the it. bottom. So what I find is it's like the closest you can get to fly fishing without a fly like yeah. basically representing exactly what the fish feed on and obviously with how you do all this you obviously are a massive believer in matching what the fish are feeding on and putting the presentation in the exact right spot
1: that is yes definitely a, a big part of the puzzle that I've that I've worked out for myself Um, is just really trying to key into exactly what those fish are doing not just going out there blindly with what worked last time trying to really reinvent the wheel and try and figure out exactly what's happening on that particular day it can be extremely frustrating I mean you can put a million different presentations in front of their face you might have the the best ideas in the world yeah but sometimes those key techniques you know like hopping a TN-60 on the bottom and that stuff, sort of stuff, you eventually fall back into those patterns because they do work at certain times yeah, of the yeah. year when the fish are in certain aggressive moods. And they're easy to use. Yeah, but plastics are just this awesome way when you, when you go out and you do that and you go, oh, it's not really working for me. Let's try and figure out exactly what we can do, and yeah. that's the benefit with the plastic. I can pick up any different profile, any different shape, any different action, and just try
0: and put it in front of the fish's face, engage a reaction. And how do you find the right lure for the right situation? Is do you just trial and error different ones, like did the worm or this one here? We've got them a in front of us. Obviously, you can't see because it's a podcast. What do you call that one? Uh, that's a finesse grub. So it's a finesse grub. It's like a grub but a very small tail. Super thin tail. How do you work out which one for what situations? you just trial and error?
1: generally have a bit of an idea in my head um, of what I think is going to be working on that particular time and yep. then it's just giving that a go and if that doesn't work trying something slightly different yeah right. i think it, that really is
0: just a, an elimination process that yep. goes th- goes on at every day with every fisher really yep. any techniques yeah exactly so gugong does does it has a certain water temperature where they like what the what's the water temperature at the minute so when we were catching them it was at 10 degrees right
1: yeah 10 degrees was when we had the best bite so far this season. Um, What's it at now? It's about 16 now. And 10 was the best. And they're not biting. Well, I think over the last two days, I've seen a few show up. But yeah, basically. So, why is that? The crawfish, I'd say. Yeah, because there's more food around. Well, it's just a general migration of the Yabbies from. We watched them early in the season, sort of we were chasing redfin around that April, March. We watched. Basically, the fish follow a line of yabbies all the way from shallow out to this big clay bank yep. that's sitting out in about 9 metres of water. It's Something that happens at mean a lot as well is you get this, this migration of yabbies that will follow out to the thermocline point yep. so that they can still scurry around and, and be a bit more active through those winter months and the fish will often follow them oh. and then as it slowly starts to warm up again around that 10 degree mark you'll get the yabbies starting to slowly make their way back up the bank.
0: Right. And we
1: can follow those, those patterns by watching them early in the season and then trying to keep an eye on where those fish might be and then watch them sort of meander their way yeah, back up.
0: Yeah, I never thought of that. I knew that they fed on yabbies, but I didn't realise they went down yeah. to get the warmer water around the thermocline Yeah. So and that's then come
1: back up. Another really key thing with redfin, I find, in dams like flowering or, or Gugong is following the, the the lines of the craws is a lot of the time what you'll find the uh, redfin schooling around in that yeah. time of year. So it's not ever just like, oh, we'll just pick this random bank here and have a jig. If you can really find where there might be you know, a, a nice long clay bank where there might be a large congregation of yabby beds and then try to work out where those, where those craws might go through the winter months, those fish will follow. So yeah, we've been watching this group of fish that had just been moving up out of this deep yabby bed into these shallower arms and, um, and basically just already had the idea in my head going okay these fish are going to be feeding on craws. Wow. We'll try and just work out what craws it is that we're catching the fish on. To be honest I threw a couple of Berkeley power bait craws in there and I got a few bites but I didn't hook any um, until I went home and made some some perch palms and I'm not sure whether that was because the craw I was using had a little bit too much action yeah so the too much wiggle in the in the claws there yeah uh, and so I just tried a super subtle presentation with one of my craws and we started just Banging fish. That's so it's the game. Really cool. How good's that? Yeah, it's awesome. So I can't complain. It's
0: more than I love the thought process. It's more than just here's a rocky bank, here's a clay bank, let's fish it. It's righto. What are the fish doing at this time of year? They're feeding on this. Those are going to be on clay banks. The yabbies. All right, here's a clay bank for the yabbies. But then, what depth are they going to be? Yeah. And do you use your sounder well, a That's lot? when the sounder comes into play. Right. But side imaging. Yeah, side imaging. At the moment, with
1: Will's twelve-inch Humminbird, it's just it does not miss a beat. It's yeah. insane. We've also, you know, we've been playing around with the pan optics a little bit, and that's interesting. But I find that it tends to, if you're fishing, say, not vertical fishing on trees or something where you can see a congregation of fish, but you're looking at schools that are moving around, it can be very distracting. Yeah, you yeah. You have to follow the fish. Um, so I, I still prefer, to be honest, that either a side scan or a traditional 2D sonar, just something that's stationary, that you don't have to mess
0: around with to try and follow them but you can still get a really good idea of where the fish are and what they're doing and when you're looking for them do you do a pass over the area so that it prints a good picture for you sometimes yeah if if
1: we're pulling into an area at the start we'll do a pass and get a good idea of what we can see you won't get the best vision of fish when you do that sometimes you will if they're really high up off the bottom and they're casting a good shadow sometimes they'll be tied in against the rocks and stuff and it's not until you actually go in there with
0: the sonar that you can see the fish moving around right with or the standard sitting. sonar that shoots straight down and then you're showing them up against the rocks you yeah. can see them sitting there
1: yeah. yeah that's definitely key and then also just when, when we're positioned in a particular location, you're able to just see what's swimming past the boat with that side scan as well. Yeah. Basically, yeah, that's one of those key things is the fish will move around. You might know that they're in a particular arm or out off a particular point, but they're not necessarily just gonna be sitting in that one spot. They could be doing loops around there. They could be circling around bait or something that's sitting out a little bit deeper. They'll move in and out of those locations. And often people will leave thinking that the fish are gone, but really they've just done a circle and they'll come back yeah. around. And, and that's another thing with tr- when fishing on trees I've found is is you can be sitting on one tree and a group of fish will move through and then there'll be nothing for 10 minutes. And then that same group of fish will just move through the exact same spot and they're just looping around the tree. So
0: they're not actually sitting on one tree all the time. No, Sometimes they could be moving, moving from that
1: tree to that tree. It happens and, at Buranjuk a lot. Yeah,
0: and you come in and you scan there. You go, oh, there's fish everywhere on that, but they could have just moved because mm. you, you don't really know. That's it. It's, it's, yeah, you've got to think about things like that. So quick question. The hooks that you use to rig these with and the, the weights you use do you where do you get them from
1: um the hooks i basically don't have any specific rules they're so, basically anything you can get in australia if you can and if not from overseas so most of my finesse plastics will suit around that size 110 hook um anything you know the 60 mil swim baits i've got on a jig head i use a, a size one hook on those a size 10 hook on the on the 90 mils on the uh texas rig craws it'll be a size 1 or a one zero hook for the for the weedless offset hooks right so weedless yep and drop shotting for the pintail minnows yeah what or kind worms. of hook are
0: they the drop shot hook
1: ds hook so drop shot hook if you look it it's up it's called a drop shot yeah hook. you'll find heaps of different brands out there gamakatsu decoy um hayabusa hayabusa's yeah. are an awesome drop shot hook okay. dsr 16s i think they're called dsr super sharp very, very strong, they're really good for a super fine finesse hook. Yep, um, they've, they've been one of my best hooks. I yeah, cool. shot
0: I just wanted to touch on that for people who are interested to yep. give it a crack because you know they might be going, All right, I've I know where to get the plastics from because yep. you've got a range of different ones, but then the hooks are also important. The Can weights are the harder thing. Ooh, yeah, yeah, so what about the weights?
1: So I sell tungsten weights that yep. I import from overseas. I don't have a huge range of them at the moment, but I do still have some left if anyone's interested. Um, I've got drop shots from size 18th up to a a quarter, yep. three-sixteenth in the middle, I think. Yep. And then the drop shot, uh, I mean, the uh, bullet weights that I sell, I've got a one-eighth and a one-quarter that I sell as well. Right. They're tungsten, so they're much smaller for their sight, for their actual physical weight, weight than what a lead would be. Um, it's better for the environment as well. Yep. But one thing I'd like to touch on in regards to fishing tungsten, and people will be like, why would you spend so much money on a weight? And the truth is, it is so much more sensitive than fishing anything lead. So I fish tungsten jig heads as well, purely because it resonates a bite so much more effectively than what a lead jig head will. Yep. So if you get bit on tungsten, the the density of that metal sends
0: much more. Of, um, yeah, 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 I know what you mean. It, the vibrations move through it a lot quicker. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you'll you'll get a wave up the line almost instantaneously. It's not dulled out by. So you're that saying lead. lead lead dulls out a hit. Yeah. Well, a lot yeah, of people right. focus on the braid versus fluorocarbon line debate, and I'm. I'm, I love both. I use them both for two different reasons. And you don't miss bites on fluorocarbon. A lot of people are like you're losing sensitivity, but you're fishing a lead jig head, you're losing sensitivity as well. Oh, yeah. You should really try tungsten and just see how it goes because I've never done. It. I'm going to try it now. Just dragging a sinker along the bottom, you know, you'll feel it change from sand to rock to mud, like you can you can really feel those subtle differences that not a lot of people would really expect. And that's why I pay a little bit more for tungsten. That's with tungsten you feel it. Yeah, yeah. and they're lighter. Small, they're smaller for their weight. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, so they're not lighter, sorry. They're yeah. smaller for their weight than lead. Which means they've got less resistance. They do. They fall. They sink faster. They yeah. hit the bottom harder. So you'll feel them thump the bottom, you know, or hit a rock or click a rock. or yeah. And even when you feel a bite, if you've got, say, um, like a bullet sinker on, you'll feel that little tick through the line way more than you would if you were fishing a lead sinker. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. Because it'll bounce up off the bottom and snap down. And, and yeah, you'll really feel that sharp tick and i find that that's helped my fishing with plastics a lot as well yeah. changing from lead to tungsten for most of the things has really increased the sensitivity and i and it and it allows you to go to a lighter softer stretchier line without losing that sensitivity
0: yeah right there's a lot more to getting success out of very niche styles of fishing and what we're talking about here is using plastics you can go so much more in depth and really hone in your technique and your fish catch goes through the roof doesn't it obviously instead of going out and catching one and two you could be pulling 10 fish just by changing how you fish and being more in tune to what's going on.
1: Yeah, I heard Muzz saying in the podcast at Windermere that, you know, occasionally dropping down to that three-pound leader will make a huge difference in your catch rate. And that's been the case for a lot of years, just trying out a lot of these more finesse style techniques, whether it be dropping my line down to two pound fluorocarbon or, yeah. or three pound fluorocarbon. I've fished four pound for golden perch.
0: That's, as I was gonna say, what do you fish? You fish four. Yeah, so yep.
1: the last few big fish we've caught the last few weekends have all been on four pound fluorocarbon. Yep. Straight through, um, quarter ounce weight on a you know, little Texas rig crawl, and just basically dragging it along the bottom, giving a little shake, a little bit of movement, little pop, and that's it. That's really just yeah, wow. keeping it really closely contacted to the bottom, trying to keep a little bit of pressure on that, just still a little bit of slack, but you'll feel the tick come through with that slack. Yep. And um, yeah, just that super finesse, subtle presentation can turn turn
0: days around. Makes so. a world of difference. It's incredible, and I've learnt so much just talking to you just about this. One other thing, I know we've been going for a while, but that it's so much good content. Do you have any tips for Redfin? apart from what we've talked about in some of the urban lakes, yeah. like how would you approach, where's where's one of the best urban lakes around Canberra to chase redfin and what technique would you use Is it? Burley Griffin or? I'll we'll give you
1: two different scenarios. So yep. we've got lakes and then we've got ponds and creeks basically. Okay. Yep. So there's heaps of ponds and creeks in Canberra. Pretty much all of them have redfin
0: in it. Yeah, what's a pond, like a pond? Like, uh, like small an
1: urban pond, you know, so you sea see it in a like park or, whatever. or something. Like- Way smaller than Yarrabee. Yeah. I mean, I'd consider Yarrabee an urban lake, it's to a be lake. honest. Yeah. Um, and then you've got, you know, the size of a backyard swimming pool sort of pond. Right, and um, they got redfin in them. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much all throughout Canberra. There's a lot of, you know, urban runoff ponds and stuff like that. Not only redfin, you'll find natives in them too. You'll yeah. find carp, you'll find goldfish, you'll find odd stuff like bass and yeah. whatever. Whatever comes out of people's aquariums. But um, it can be really interesting just exploring those small waterways like I've spent my entire life doing it on my bike or just driving around to every different piece of water I've ever seen and trying to catch fish out of them and to be honest most of them I have yeah wow so that's a really really cool thing is is with like somewhere like canberra um just the availability of urban water waterways within you know five minutes from almost anybody's house is really cool and that's there's some the big readies in those ponds i won't tell any exact spots but there's if you just get out and explore you'll find them yeah um and typically i tend to, to fish those cooler months sort of you know march april may through winter too. It'll slow down. For redfin? Yeah, you'll get the bigger, bigger fish but few and far between. So
0: March, April, May is the go though?
1: Yeah, that'll be your, your cool down period when those fish start and to And do
0: you feed. prefer to fish the ponds or do you still fish the bigger lakes? I fish them fishing? all.
1: I fish them all. I like the ponds just for convenience so right. basically you know, I can finish work, go home, grab my rod, go to the pond, have yep. an hour or two, come
0: home. And what's the technique? Uh, to, a, a, a general good technique to use in most of them?
1: To to simple, simplify everything down, um, I'd probably just say stick to small plastics. I'm not going to yeah. say go for a drop shot because not a lot of people are going to be confident yeah, yeah, putting obviously. them on in the first for the first instance. But a small small paddle tail grub um, or small curl tail grub, paddle yep. tail swim bait on a light jig head, you can't go wrong. They'll they'll catch your fish. The one thing is, a lot of these um, these ponds and creeks have varying substrate and structure, so adapting to those sorts of conditions can be hard chucking a jig head into underneath you know reeds or cover or anything like that you're going to lose a few lures but it's going to be worthwhile so that's when you know experimenting with the techniques and stuff like texas rigs and drop shots will come into play but if anyone's interested they can come and send me a message on on perch palm and and chat to me i'm more than happy to show them how i rig up rig up these techniques yeah in regards to lake fishing right now Lake Billy Griffin's probably one of the hottest fisheries around, I'd say. Yeah, wow. It's an unbelievable fishery. The last five years, everything's just exploded into life, like golden yeah. perch everywhere. Huge schools of big redfin have actually come, made a comeback. Yeah. They're kind of depleted for a while there, and we're getting you know the odd schools of little redfin come through. But I think for three years, we didn't catch a reddy. Yeah, it's wow. just all goldens. And now, last two years, we've been going out there, funnily enough, in around February which is warm and the fish are preparing to spawn so they're getting really fed up on Red on, fin. on baby redfin sometimes perch have a, a two-year like a twice a year spawning you talking about goldens no redfin. Oh, talking about redfin yeah yeah so sometimes they'll they'll actually gear up to spawn twice in, in a given year depending yeah. on the conditions in the last two years we've found a really early run of perch gearing up full fat bodies yeah. you know like 35 to 45 centimeter fish in schools of thousands and that we had a really fun session in february this year uh hilly will and i um and we caught probably 300 fish between us up to 45 centimeters we over, got a cod in there over as well. what the month no over the day oh what <laughs> yeah. over one day yeah so burley griffin can be an amazing perch fishery for redfin or So, I mean, And are you
0: fishing it from a boat? Yeah, that was from a boat. And but, you can put any boat on there?
1: Uh, you can still, it's still electric only. Right, um, same
0: rules as Gugong. Slightly them.
1: different rules because it's it's managed by the National Capital Authority. You do require a permit. Right. Um, you can have an outboard on, on the boat, but it doesn't need to be bagged. Right. But you can't have fuel on there. Although the ACT Water Police occasionally say it's probably a good idea to have fuel on because it can blow up pretty bad and if you need to get out of there i don't yeah. want to get myself in trouble by saying yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. maybe we can cut that bit yeah but yeah uh you can use you can use a, an electric powered boat let's just say so that. you were using will's boat uh that was in hilly's boat that day but right. yeah we, we fish out of just pretty much any boats like yeah. there's we we've got mates that put their bass boats on there we've got mates and that the have,
0: electric boat sorry there's it does it have to have the permit just to have the boat on there if it's yeah. just electric so any boat you put on there you need a permit that's correct. Kayak. Yep. Right,
1: okay. No, no, not kayak. Just any powered boat. Right, so okay. powered by electric power. You need a... Permit. Yeah, need there a are permit. special permits for people to put petrol on there, but you only usually allow them for rowers.
0: Where do you, where do
1: you go to get the permit? Um, just online. Right. Yeah, so I'd just recommend... Lake Burley Griffin um, boat permit or...? Yeah, Lake Burley Griffin boat to permit. Just search that. That'll work. Yeah. That'll work for sure. Okay. Cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, so the redfin fishing, grade in there. Yeah, yeah, it can be at times. And it's the same basically for Gugong as well. Like... Gugong has been pretty tough for redfin the last two years and we're watching basically the fish clean them out every every summer. By the end of summer you know you might have December a huge explosion of bait. Yeah, redfin yeah. everywhere busting up on the surface like Taylor.
0: No way. Yeah
1: and then all the yellows and cod will ball them up near the surface and they'll go berserk and then by the end of sort of March, April that population of redfin's almost gone. So you'll get your stragglers, eating. yeah, they get absolutely destroyed. You get your stragglers on the edges in the warmer months, then they'll sort of cool off and disappear. But then you also get these big schools of schooling redfin. So they generally never go up into the shallows. They spend all their time out in about sort of 6 to 20 metres of water. Yeah. Um, and you'll catch them generally in the cooler months on those big, deep yabby beds that I was talking about. And um, you can get you know 10 to 15 fish over 45 centimetres in, in one school. So, But that's very hard to find. So cool. The last two years, we've really struggled to find those bigger redfin. We had one session in March this year where we got about five good ones out of probably three 400 fish. Um, but then other years, we've had no small fish. It's all been you know 40 to 45 centimetre fish. Beautiful. Yeah. Kilo and a half eating quality redfin. Yeah, right. So I love eating redfin as well. Yeah, Usually, why not? Usually, only out of clean water, so, so Gugong's beautiful. Yeah. What about Burley? Nah, no. I don't. I don't necessarily eat anything out of the urban run. <laughs> I mean, just to it, be safe. Oh, it's not necessarily even safe. It's more. It's just a taste thing, I suppose. And also, to taste like rubbish too. Burley Griffin's clean. I'm not going to lie. It is very clean at the moment, um, and it's probably fine to eat them. But I just prefer to eat them out of
0: yep. out of Gugong. Yeah, hundred percent. Totally yeah. understand. So, just tell me quickly. What is? Have you got one favorite catch? Have you got? One Can you nail one favourite fish over the years that really sticks in your mind? I notice that you've got here... Um, I've got a few things written down there, <laughs> yeah. Because I, I do remember those two big cod you caught at Gugong with yep. Will. Yeah. I'm sure that was a great day. Uh,
1: I think I, it's a good, good enough story to go for the 106. Yeah, so the 106. Yeah, the 106 is definitely up there with one of my favourite catches. So when out. did you catch that? I caught that December 20... 20-
0: 17. And how'd it happen? What What's the story? So,
1: Will and I had spent, I don't know, maybe two weeks um, just searching Googong, looking for groups of fish. We'd been catching the odd yellow here and there, just fishing. So, you're looking for yellows? Yeah, we were yeah. looking for yellows. Um, it was middle of summer. It was yeah December 20, I don't know, maybe 26 or 27, just after Christmas. Um, we'd spent weeks just searching the lake, picking up a few little bits and pieces here and there and working yeah. them out. Uh, We stumbled across a huge school of fish in about three meters of water. Yellows. Yellows. Well, what we thought were yellows, and there were yellows in there, but three meters of water, literally about a meter above my head as I stand, we stumbled across them directly below the boat and basically dropped down, started catching a few really big goldens, and we were like, "Sweet, we're in three meters of water, dropping lures on these huge goldens' head," and then all of a sudden, will just loads up, gets smoked way out into the depths on spin gear, like six pounds. And what are you what
0: are you fishing with?
1: Uh, TN60s. Right. So gets smoked, turn the, the fish turns around and heads straight back in, we'd followed it out and ran straight back into the timber, wrapped him around, busted him off. In, See you later. And your expectation was that wasn't a yellow? We knew it was a cod. We just knew because <laughs> it you know like absolutely yeah. completely obliterated him on spin gear. Um, and sometimes they do that and sometimes they don't. It's very weird. We, uh, we basically went, oh, well, that was a big cod. Let's go back in there. Basically, all the goldens had spread out, and we were like, oh, yeah, they must have just been spooked by this big fish coming through. Left, came back about 10 minutes later. The fish had all moved back into the area again. Bang, caught a couple more yellers. Hooked up, yep, I'm on, fighting this fish for, I don't know, maybe five, 10 seconds. Snaps me off, and I'm like, that was another cod. This is, this is crazy. So I think later on that afternoon, we, we caught a fair few fish and we were like, well, wow, we've been snapped off by three or four cod today on light tackle. Let's just go and fish our way home and we'll come back and try and get them again later. And um, basically on the way back, we stopped off at one more spot. And I was watching the side scan out off this edge of this point And I saw three big fish moving along the left and I threw a TN in there, let it hit the bottom, basically felt a tick, set the hook and fought this fish, I was out of the clear, I wasn't in this timbery area where we were before, so I fought this fish for about 45 minutes, ended up being 97, and, um,
0: 97, yeah, huge fat
1: cod, and got it in, landed it, we were like, yeah, sweet, that was awesome, really cool, they must have
0: been chewing,
1: oh, they were chewing, the next day, I think it was the next day, yeah, next day we went out, back again, same few spots that we'd found a few fish, bricked, busted off, you know really? three or four times before we got that's up there. crazy caught a few more yellers got to the same spot where we got bricked the day before and basically yeah saw a few yellers in there saw a big mark move underneath dropped my lure on top of his head clipped the bail arm over while i was on bait cast tackle like one one to three kilo super light bait cast rod and um, 12 pound fluorocarbon and set the hooks on this thing and just went yep yeah, that's a cod for sure and it went straight for a tree i think i i, I thumbed it and kind of just tipped his head yeah. and he got his head up over the tree branch and then I rolled his head back out he <laughs> went straight back out in the deep water and we chased him. We were like, okay, we're in the clear here. Two and a half hours later, I could not get this fish off the bottom. So like, he just sat there still? Oh, he was running around in circles, just oh, okay. out here, back underneath. But every time he came back under the sounder, we we're like, he must be up. He must be up. Just skimming the bottom. And we're like, holy crap, this is going to take a while. Really light tackle, you know, yeah. I was worried that a fish was going to die. Um, but yeah, just kept battling it. A couple of boats <laughs> came around. They were giving us beers because they were just like, this is ridiculous.
0: What they were watching.
1: Yeah. I could not lift its head. I was fishing, you know, it's a, a you know, the real finesse eradicator rods. Mm. It's a bait cast version of that. So it's a super light brim rod in a bait caster, essentially. And I was just really slowly working it just as it was doing circles around the boat, getting it up, getting it up, go back down, get up, go no back way. down. And finally, you know, finally got a crack of beer open and sat back and we were just working it up, working it up, slowly seeing it coming up on the sounder. And we got it up to the boat and we went, oh, it's not as big as we'd actually thought because it's just been fighting for so long. The last one we got was hugely fat. Yeah. Um, It only took 45 minutes to land. And this thing just never gave up right to the very end. We got it in the net and we were like, it's a good fish. It's a 106, but it was a male and it wasn't the typical Gugong absolute behemoth. It was just super fit and yeah. strong. No no blushing in the fins whatsoever. Pure white on the belly, green, really energetic still. And we were like, two and a half hours fight and this fish still has energy left in it. How is that possible? Yeah. Everyone was like, whoa, that was crazy. So basically put her back in the water and I was expecting a little bit of a revival, you know. But as soon as I stuck it in the water, she bit on my hand and thrashed her head and just took, took off. off. And we were just like, that's, that's impressive. Like, yeah. I was really worried about that fish after about an hour yeah. into that fight just going this is crazy I don't want to fight this fish maybe we should just cut it off but yeah, yeah, yeah. eventually you know and it'd it, be hard you just can't you just, no you just can't you just you, you want to see it you got to yeah. see it and you know yeah. it was real quick we got her out of the water took a couple of snaps and, and put her yeah. straight back in I saw and that fish it was, it was a stunning fish and yeah. just one of those things like Will had it on live for like, the whole time on live on Instagram people are just like what is going on why are you still fighting this <laughs> fish is it?" it yeah. is it Moby Dick sort of yeah. thing. But, yeah, like, and then we've had others, you know. we Will got that 122 about a week later on. He upped his tackle just a bit. We couldn't get bites on anything but, like, 6
0: to 8 pound. Yeah. So, like, even Cod were that clued in on light line. Yeah, well, cod, I reckon Cod are smarter than Goldens, and we try to chase Cod on heavy gear because they're big, and I'm dropping down from 8 pound of 6 pound to 4 pound for yellows. So really, a cod being as intelligent a fish, you would think that they can see the difference between four pound and 10 pound, but what about when we use 30 pound? No well, wonder I can, we can't catch them.
1: Yeah, I can tell you if, if we were sitting in three metres of water on top of this fish's head fishing 30 pound, even just jigging a doozer or something, I don't think you would have bit. No. Nah. It was just, we were targeting goldens and we just kept catching cod, like kept hooking <laughs> them. I think we ended up with like seven fish over the space of a couple of weeks there where it was really hot by mm. seven cod. Wow. all on super light tackle chasing goldens and it just ended up being one of those things was like we were still catching plenty of good goldens doing yeah. that but we just got used to losing lures and getting snapped off <laughs> it was That's one of those crazy. things and um yeah it's just it you can't pick the fish either i mean gugong's typical for these big overgrown super fat obese yeah. fish but then every now and then you'd Will hooked one the other day when we were chasing golden, see it was would have been a metre 10 probably. No way on a ZX on six pound, and we fought it for about 15 20 minutes. Got it to the boat like three or four times, and we didn't have a net because we had just golden tackle, it was close season. And
0: oh, you lost it.
1: Well, were, we were kind of like, Yeah, whatever, if it's going to snap off, it's going to snap off. Let's just try and get a grip on it, get the hooks out, and take a quick photo or whatever in the water. And uh, yeah, after fifth or sixth lunge near the boat, just wore through the line. But that it was the oldest looking fish. It looked like it had been in the Murrumbidgee River for about 30 yeah, years. But right. it was a goongong fish. So it must have been one of the older you know, older generation there. of fish in there. It's yeah, quite a big fish, but not fat or yeah, healthy
0: looking. I noticed that. They do get to a certain size and they stop growing and they get fat. And then they sort of come back the other way and yeah. sort of start to die. But
1: yeah, it's definitely like you get up to that 120 mark and they're not...
0: Balloons like this, they're just big, yeah, yeah, just yeah, peacock. it's crazy. So, that's been some awesome stuff. Now, just before we finish up, where to now for you? What's your plans fishing? life the plastics what's the plan where to now for rory
1: um so i'm definitely going to continue making my baits i don't know i've been working really hard to try and get them to a point where they're production ready so i can actually sell quantities of them but it's just not been as an easy of a a ride as anyone would hope so i'm still going to just keep working away at that in the the background keep trying to sell them when i can um keep trying to improve my molds and stuff like that and obviously keep fishing because i'll never stop yes um keep fishing keep Giving you guys content and trying to trying to be um, you know open and honest about yep. it all. Yeah. Trying to trying to film some footage and yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah, and enjoy just enjoy it. it. And that's it's the one go. thing you, you just can't
0: you know, you've always got to enjoy what you do. And if you don't then yeah. You gotta stop. You, you gotta find stop. something else. Yeah, it's not it's not about yeah, it's about doing what you love and then trying to make it work. Yeah. Really. Otherwise if you do something you don't love, make it work it's not that's not life
1: no it's not and I've it's something I've always struggled with you know like and I've always put things into into place where I can I can deal with the, the crappy things as long as I've got a few things to keep my attention you know? yeah and exactly. that's why the plastics have been so good it's been such a learning curve such a challenge so much work but it's kept me motivated to go and fish and enjoy fishing and, and try new things and, and also it's just so cool to see people catching fish on them yeah they're not, you know, they're not out there everywhere at the moment, but it's really cool to see people catching fish. Like, have just been getting some text messages from dudes in America.
0: How cool is that? Yeah,
1: chasing some largemouth bass on them. Yeah, that's that's really, okay. pretty that's cool. That's
0: so awesome. So, before we finish up, last question I've got for you. What's one tip, one thing you would share with people? What's your secret to success? This can be anything, not just fishing, life in general. Is there anything, one last thing you've got to share with people at yeah,
1: all? Yeah, just... Find what you're passionate about and just keep working on it. I mean, it's never going to be perfect from the start. You've just got to keep doing it and make sure you enjoy it from from the get-go because if you're not enjoying it, then you're wasting your time. You've got to just keep keep striving for whatever it is that makes you happy. Exactly.
0: and it's not just like everyone listening would love fishing and, we're, and you're not talking just about fishing. You're talking about whatever niche within that. Like you, yeah. it's the plastics. You love the plastics. Yeah. And that's what you enjoy. So you keep doing it. Whereas for me, it's about creating content and yeah. sharing content as much as we can. So what you're saying is figure out what you really, really enjoy. That's
1: it. I mean, everyone's going to have a piece of the pie in regards to what it is when they come to fish. Uh, sort of pick yeah. up a fishing rod. Yeah. Um, I'm a creative person. I've always been an artist and a designer, and and I like the creative side. I can I can put a spin on on the fishing things. You know, mm-hmm. I can make the lures, or I can play around with my rigs and color in my baits and do all these sorts of things. Um, other people might love making videos and and just you know just generally talking about it or making friends like there's so many people yeah. in the industry that you can you know really relate to that you can't in other parts mm. if you're a fisherman like me you'll know it's very hard to be sociable with people who aren't fishermen <laughs> so yeah yeah like it's just no one wants to hear about fishing when they're not interested but no. anyone that's interested it's just like wow you can just talk for hours yeah, so
0: good yeah it's it so is good. it's
1: awesome i think that's that's another key thing about it is just yeah make the cool people talk to the talk to everyone and be friendly and be honest and just do what you do yeah Yeah,
0: that's that's awesome that was that was a great episode of the podcast i love it thanks so much for sharing your time i love what you're doing you're doing a great job so keep doing it thank you so much for joining me and um i'll talk to you very soon cheers race have a good one man thanks for that thanks rory There you have it. What an incredible episode with such a passionate angler. Rory is a true Aussie bloke and it was so good of him to open up and share his story. Even going As deep as sharing his own personal battles with you, but also his passions and his fishing techniques. Rory had his perch palm plastics sitting in front of us during the chat, and I spent another hour with him after the podcast looking through his range and talking more about using plastics. His wealth of knowledge is incredible, and so are his plastics. He has custom designed them for fishing right here in Australia, and he has caught some incredible fish on them. The plastics are made from super stretchy and strong material, so they last longer than conventional plastics, and I highly recommend you grab yourself a few if you get the opportunity. They're a really good plastic, a huge range that'll suit a range of different situations. Follow him at Palm on Instagram for updates on when the plastics become available, and also just to follow Rory's fishing journeys and also make sure you check out his Perch Palm Diaries videos. Once again, I want to thank Rory for his time. It was a great interview and I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down and having a chat with him. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as well and learnt as much as I did. Even if you pick up just one thing from this podcast, that could make a massive difference to your fishing out on the water. Once again, guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app and let me know what you think. It's great to hear your feedback and thoughts. We've had some great messages come through so far, so thank you to those who have sent them in and also the listener questions until next week guys good luck with the fishing and i'll be talking to you very soon